Hey everybody, this is Craig Ballantyne from TurbulenceTraining.com. I have a really special call this month. We have John Berardi from uh, Precision Nutrition. And John, welcome to the call. Hey, thanks for having me on, Craig. I'm looking forward to sharing some stuff and having a good chat about everything we're up to and how we can help people. Well, I'm really hoping that you guys learned something in the last year since our last call. <laughs> is, that, uh, <laughs> is that correct to say? Um, I think that's probably correct to say. Good, man. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, just from reading some of your articles, you've definitely done a lot of personal experiments that are going to be great to go over. And also, you know, working with so many people through your site and so many trainers, you're going to have a lot of great insights into how our trainers can get more results and also keep people compliant. I think that's going to be, you know, maybe the second half of our call and it'll be really, really great information. But, you know, before Mm -hmm. we get into it, why don't you walk us through um, a day in the training life of Dr. John Berardi now. I know you did a lot of experiments last year, and we'll get to those in a second, but now I think you're kind of back to uh, your normal routine. So why don't you tell us um, how you're training. Uh, I know you're training for a special event, and then what your nutrition might look like on one of those training days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to share that. Um, you know, my my situation may be a little bit unique. I don't know how many people on the, the that'll be listening in to this uh, conversation will be competing at the master's level in track and field, which is what I'm up to right now. So there might not be a lot of immediate applicability to what I'm up to, but it might uh, cast a little bit of an interesting insight into how to structure these sort of things. Um, for me, uh, I, I was a track and field athlete when I was younger. I was a sprinter. I ran 100 meter, 200 meter. And, um, you know, sort of late in the game here where, you know, I had been competing in bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength sports almost predominantly, you know, I just I just hit a phase in my life where I, I really, you know, I was doing track workouts for fun, just as sort of general conditioning stuff. And uh, I started to get faster, started to like doing them more, kind of brought me back to when I was younger. And I just, then, then I had this sort of confluence of events. I was back at home in, in Philadelphia where I grew up. And I ran into one of the guys that was on my 4 by 100 meter relay team in high school. And we had a really good team. And I'm happy to admit I was the worst and slowest member of the team, although I, I ran pretty quickly. Uh, we had a couple national champions on the team. They were guys who were running like 10.3 in the 100 in, in high school. And so that was pretty studly. So anyway, I ran into this guy, and he was still in really good shape. And... Uh, we were talking about our old 4x100 team, and all the other guys on the team still are training, are still in really good shape, and we're all around 40 years old. So that's kind of an impressive thing to see. You know, a lot of friends that I was in high school with uh, are have gone the opposite direction, quite frankly. So, um, you know, we talked about having our sort of master's reunion tour. Uh, there was a big event that we, we raced at called the Penn Relays, and it's a big international track meet. Um, in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia. And so we said, hey, wouldn't it be cool if once we all hit 40, we ran in the Masters division in the 4x100, just like 23 years later. And so that's what, so, uh, you know, we all started taking our training a little bit more seriously. So that's kind of what I'm up to now. I'm training track and field. So, you know, three days a week, four days a week, I'm on the track. Uh, I have an indoor facility I can train at here in the Canadian winter. And, uh, you know, I'm doing sprint training and technique drills and flexibility and all this stuff that, quite frankly, needed to be improved. Uh, You don't really realize how much 
mobility and flexibility you're really losing you know after the age of 30 especially when you just do strength training uh, until you actually start to challenge it. And so I knew I had a lot of work to do. Um, you know, in terms of strength training itself, I only do one or two sessions of those a week. You know, I, you know, from years of strength training, I'm strong enough for track, so I don't need to do any more of that. Um, so really it's just maintenance on the strength side and, and a lot of sort of technical stuff to start recruiting the right muscles that are more relevant for track and a lot of dynamic stuff for, you know, power and mobility. And then, yeah, so it's kind of, you know, four days, three days on the track, something like that, one or two days of strength training. And uh, and that's what my, my training program looks like. And it's all speed and power stuff. And, you know, uh, you know I got back into this as sort of, you know, a, a fun little experiment in in getting back to a sport that I, I really loved when I was younger, but the benefits are fantastic. I mean, you know, I'm I'm maintaining a body fat between, you know, four and five percent and, and I know a lot of people will scoff and say, Ah, oh, that's impossible but I have an ultrasound device and I use that and whether it's accurate or not, I'm pretty lean. And uh and, you know, the mobility that I'm getting, the power that I'm getting out of this uh, I mean, in the first two months of my training, I increased my vertical jump by five inches. And it was kind of unheard of. It was kind of sad to begin with. But nevertheless, that's a huge increase. And, uh, you know, it's these are all qualities we lose as we get older. Um, you know, for most people, it's, you know, throughout their 30s, and then it really never comes back. So, you know, it's just one of these things where I feel like uh, not only am I training for fun for this cool sport, I'm actually, you know, uh, uh, increasing my ability in a host of qualities that were probably neglected for a long time and probably would have just kept going downhill. So that's the training side of things. And, and on the nutrition side of things, you know, I, I, I basically use two principles. As you know, I, I experimented with intermittent fasting last year, Craig, and uh, we published a free ebook on that. We can talk about that later if you like. And, um, so I've kind of continued with some experiments in intermittent fasting, and I just sort of settled into a nice routine where, you know, I I wake up in the morning, I have a green tea or coffee, uh, I have a greens drink, and then, you know, I get to work. And then I work for a few hours, I have my workout around noon or one, and then I eat my first meal of the day after that. And then I usually eat three meals by the end of the day, um, by about 10 p.m. or something like that. And then I just start over the next day. And really, my my uh, entire schedule is based on, on calorie and carb cycling. And so three days a week, uh, generally on my track days, I have high-carbohydrate days. So I eat a lot of calories on those days. I eat pretty high carbs. Um, you know, So it's it's basically meat, veggies, and then carbohydrates on top of that. And then on my other days of the week, so it might be four other days of the week, I just delete all the carbs. So it's just meat and veggies and, you know, good fats and things like that. So the program's really, really simple. Just three days a week, eat a lot of meat, a lot of veggies, and a lot of carbs. And then the rest of the days, eat a lot of meat, a lot of veggies, and no carbs. And uh, and that's kind of it. And I just pretty much don't eat breakfast. I just eat after training. Uh, three meals or so. It's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward, and you know, it's it's working for what I'm doing. So that's that's kind of what I'm up to nowadays. Awesome. Uh, let's go back to the training and talk about how you have adapted your not so much your training, I suppose, but your preparation and your post-workout uh, 
treatment in terms of recovery, avoiding injury, preparing for the workouts? How has that changed from yeah, you know, <laughs> fantastic question. Yeah, awesome question, and it gets really at the heart of this thing, you know, because for people who've done you know nothing but if you want to call it fitness training. The orientation to track and field workouts is completely different, and, and I suspect that's why you asked the question because of your experience with athletes, Craig. Um, you know, whereas with uh, with most sort of going to the gym type of workouts, you kind of get there, you know, you slog your way through a little workout or a little warm up, you know, ten minutes, fifteen minutes, whatever it might be. You're just trying to get to the workout. That's where you lift the weights or do the the, the circuits, right, or the conditioning. With track and field stuff, it's completely opposite. I spend probably an hour warming up and doing stretching and technique drills. And, man, it's tough in the beginning because, like, you think, oh, you're going for a sprint workout. You're going to sprint a lot. And you spend the entire first hour just not sprinting. And you're like, what what are you doing? I'll bring friends out for a sprint workout with me. And they're like, well, when do we run? And I'm like, oh yeah, that's five minutes at the end. Um, So it's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of technical stuff in the beginning, a lot of warm up, a lot of preparation, prehab, if people want to call it that, Um, dynamic stretching, there's static stretching involved. And uh, you basically spend a lot, a lot of time preparing the body to work at an extremely high intensity, which is what sprinting is, for just a short period of time. So, you know, for my track workouts, it's it's literally an hour of a quote-unquote warm-up and technical session, and then maybe 15, 20, maybe 30 minutes of actual sprint work, you know, depending on the volume and the intensity. And then uh, and then you sort of, you're right, recovery modalities at the end are really, really critical. Uh, for me, I do some foam rolling, um, I, I do sauna and steam. I do contrast showers after that. So normally I'll roll for a little bit. Um, I'll hit uh, a steam for 10 minutes, a sauna for 10 minutes, and then I'll do contrast showers. And that just basically means you get in the shower and you turn it on as cold as it gets, and you tighten up and you just blast through it for five minutes, and then you uh, then you go to warm and then you then you take off. And then I also uh, have a, a manual therapist, uh, an ART guy who's a chiropractor, and he also does shockwave therapy and acupuncture. And I see him once or twice a week as well. And and uh, this is all just preventative maintenance stuff. You know, I mean, the the demands of sprinting are so high that, it, you know, if you expect to train for real, uh, you, you, can, you just can't do it unless you're 17 years old and have phenomenal recovery you know, or you have uh, a secret chemist in the background manufacturing compounds for you. Uh, without all this preparation and recovery-oriented stuff, this doesn't work. And you know, on the nutritional side, you know, I think diet's pretty pretty important here. But I also use a host of um, things that help me with recovery, uh, supplement-wise. Uh, one thing that I think is really, really useful is is something by Labrador Nutrition called Sore Enzyme. And it's a host of enzymes that, uh, theoretically at least, are supposed to, instead of just helping with the digestion of your food, uh, you're supposed to take them on an empty stomach so they can actually act uh, throughout the body to manage inflammation, to manage the hormonal response to exercise, and to manage the immune response. And I feel like they make a big difference. I mean, they're basically marketed to reduce muscle soreness for weightlifters, but... Um, 
you know, I think they have a really good impact for people in sport who are training this kind of way. I also take some things like curcumin, which is an anti-inflammatory, and uh, and stuff like that to just kind of manage these small like micro traumas and injuries that occur out on the track. And uh, again, if you're if you're younger, if you're 17, 18, whatever, um, you probably don't need to do any of this. I certainly didn't when I was in high school and I was running. But uh, when you're 40, it's a whole different ball game. So you need to really, really put the pedal to the metal on recovery, technique, mobility. So the relationship between preparation and recovery to work almost flips. Like when you're a young kid, there's a lot of work, very little preparation and recovery. Uh, as you these types of things sort of meet in the middle, and then you know when you get to my age, they have to flop. You have to spend most of your time on preparation and recovery, and very you know a little bit of time on the work aspect. And that for me was a huge revelation. When, you know, and in, in fact, uh, I have a daughter; she's two years old, and, and she goes to gymnastics. And uh, I've watched how slowly they progress her through different techniques and skills, and. Uh, I learned so much just watching that because you think, like, how do these girls in the Olympics, you know, in gymnastics, how do they get trained to the point where they can, you know, do the uneven bars and they can uh, do a floor routine? And they're, I mean, they're upside down and twisting and flipping and they're high in the air. Like, how are they not frightened? How do you prepare someone from day zero where they've never even gone upside down to that? How, what's the path? And it's just a very, very, very slow, cautious, and controlled progression, right? So it's from no aptitude to world-class aptitude. What's in between? And it's just this slow progression. And watching that gave me just a tremendous insight into what we do as fitness professionals and how we need to be very conscientious about that specific thing what is the progression we're taking clients through you know i applied it to myself in track and field but it's something we're spending a lot of time at precision nutrition doing on the nutrition front i mean the the old days when you walk into a gym and someone would say oh yeah i want to get in shape and you give you know you start working with them as a personal trainer and then you'd hand them a meal plan it's a very interesting dichotomy there i mean there's some irony to it on the training side you're starting with them as a beginner and if you're any good, you're taking them through a progression. So on day one, it should be a shorter workout. You should progress them through you know, less complex movements and over time build them up to more complex movements. But on the nutrition front, people are giving them the most complicated thing on day one. Here's your meal plan. Go for it. No progression, no development. So that's what we've been spending a lot of time at PN working on. How do we use the principles of progression used in sport, in uh, personal training, in any physical domain, and apply it to nutrition? What are the progressions? What's the first step? Like if I wanted to teach someone a power clean or a snatch, I wouldn't just give them the bar and say, let her rip. Here, watch this guy do it and you try it. No, you're going to chunk it out. So that's what we've been spending a lot of time doing with PN. How do we create nutritional progression models uh, like physical progression models so that people can actually succeed, you know, rather than giving them the bar, trying to have them flip it over their head, and if they get hurt, they get hurt, or simply they learn to do it wrong from the beginning and they do it wrong for the rest of their career. So that's, that's a lot of what we've been working on. I, I kind of spiraled all off topic there, but uh, I think it all relates in some way. 
Yeah, we're going to get back to that nutrition progression, which sounds pretty cool. Um, first, can can we get that Labrata sore enzyme in Canada? Uh, yeah, actually, yes. I I, uh, I just order it from bodybuilding.com, um, and, uh, yeah, they ship it right up. Great. Awesome stuff. That's uh, something I'm looking forward to checking out. Um, okay, and then just one last question on the training. You are doing three days of – I'm not sure if you went over your training schedule per week – so you're doing three mm-hmm. days of training only, or you're yeah, doing three I'm, days of track work and then a little bit yeah. of weight training as well? Yeah, I probably work out six days. So okay. uh, typically, depending on how things are structured, it'll be three or four days of, of track work, one or two days of weight training, strength training. And uh, if if the schedule is sort of open on the sixth day, I'll usually do something like um, – anaerobic sprints on the bike so it'll be like a 20 second on 40 second off bike sprints type of workout just you know to work basically speed endurance type of thing Uh, if if it was summer i probably wouldn't be doing the bike work at all i'd probably be out on the track doing longer longer distance sprints and tempo work but because it's it's the winter and i only have access to a small indoor facility for for my sprint work i'll do bike sprints instead so just kind of working with the the environment that we have up here okay perfect all right so let's go over and talk about your um, experiment with intermittent fasting and and one thing you mentioned about your schedule now uh, compared to the original article you wrote was um, i thought that you had you really wanted to stick to the breakfast schedule. So it sounds like something's maybe changed since you wrote that article. Uh, but otherwise, mm-hmm. let us know uh, everything that you found, what you uh, what yeah. you uh, Well, there. you know, I, I, I know that you've been a proponent or, or played around with different intermittent fasting things over the years. And, you know, I mean, a lot of people, well, I guess I should start at the beginning. Basically, you know, I I've been exposed to intermittent fasting for as long as everyone else has been. And um, you know, at Precision Nutrition, we've had a really really good system over the years and I mean, to be quite honest, we've worked with more clients uh one-on-one in nutrition coaching than anyone else in the world right now, and that's not an exaggeration and that's not hyperbole. I mean, we enroll, you know, nowadays close to 4,000 clients in our lean eating coaching program uh every year. And so we have data on everything. Uh, we work with these clients individually. We have coaches who work with all those clients. So, I mean, we, we kind of know what works, and we, we kind of are experimenting and testing things all the time. You know, and generally our advice had been to eat a bit more frequently throughout the day, you know, for a lot of the reasons that most people have heard, managing blood sugar, managing certain hormonal levels, you know, keeping people um, uh less hungry so that they're less likely to overeat later in the day, those types of things. But, you know, the intermittent fasting thing has gotten interesting. I mean, there's some great data, particularly in animal models. There's still not a lot of good data in human models yet. But uh, showing that, you know, intermittent fasting compared to normal intake um, has a whole bunch of benefits from, you know, physiology to some psychological benefits to body comp type of things. So, I mean, it's it's something that can't really be ignored, although it's simply not for everyone. So, you know, with me, I have been in a situation where I wanted to do this track and field stuff, and I was too big. I mean, I was 195 pounds, and I wanted to get 170, 175 pounds. So I need to lose about 20, 25 pounds. And I thought, you know what, if I'm going to do this, 
I might as well try this intermittent fasting thing and see what happens. So that was the impetus for me to start. You know, I was real curious about intermittent fasting. Um, I, I wanted to give some of them different models a test run. So whether it's, you know, uh, fasting just one day a week, fasting two days a week, fasting a portion of every day, whatever the case may be, I just wanted to try everything. And, you know, in the pursuit of a very specific goal, lose as much body fat as possible and lose about 25 pounds. So, I, you know, from, you saw the book and you're probably familiar with it. For people who haven't, I, I tested everything. I did, you know, six or seven different protocols. Um, I measured everything. I did blood work. I did photos. I did, you know, uh, girths and skin folds and, and uh, ultrasound measures. Um, I, I sort of even kept a log of, like, emotional and, and uh, you know, energy levels and things like that. And the idea was just which of these worked best for me and was I able to accomplish my goal using intermittent fasting? And the answer was yes. I mean, I ended up losing about 25 pounds, got super ripped. Um, You know, if that's your goal, this can work for that. A lot of other things can work too. And uh, it it was overall a good experience, although some of the different fasting models absolutely crushed me. I mean, they were were too restrictive. They uh, kicked off eating disordered behavior that – that sort of I've never experienced in my entire life, uh, you know, and and these things, I mean, the interplay between our body and our energy balance and our mood and our mental health are so delicate, and I think few people in our field actually really, really understand this. I mean, you see people who might be suffering from disordered eating, and uh you know, a lot of folks who are uninformed just think they're kind of crazy, right? Oh, well, you have a mental illness. But the fact of the matter is a lot of progressive physiologists think, well, these types of disordered eating may be kicked off by nutrient deficiencies or by too uh, long of a negative energy balance, which causes stress, and cortisol can actually shrink certain portions of your brain. So there's this really, really fascinating and delicate interplay between, you know, mood, mental health, physical intake, energy balance. It's its awesome stuff. And, and, you know, if people want to dig into some of this a little more, one, a great book that I really liked is Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, which is basically by a preeminent stress physiologist who talks about all the consequences of stress on our lives. Why does stress cause heart disease? Why does stress cause, you know, memory lapses? Why does stress cause any of the things, you know, gastrointestinal distress, What's the link there? You know, I mean, historically, doctors have thought, well, you know, although that's just a mental illness, right? You've got to get your mind right, and then you wouldn't be having these somatic or body symptoms. But uh, nowadays, we know it's this nonsense. There's like a very physical response to our environment, which can cause stress, and that stress can link to a bunch of hormones and neurotransmitters being released, and that can link to all kinds of health and physical manifestations. So the mind does govern the body in this regard. So anyway, this is my long-winded way of saying that intermittent fasting it was very cool. Uh, it was, it was, some of the models were fantastic for me. Uh, some of the other models were awful. I mean, I was literally like, you know, it would be time to play with my daughter, and all I could think about was food. And I'd be like, okay, honey, let's go to Dairy Queen, you know. And uh, I was just like, and she loved it, of course, but I was just obsessed with food. And it it sort of, some of my relationships suffered, um, and and my own relationship with myself suffered. So, you know, a a tale of caution 
intermittent fasting is getting popular on the internet in particular and if you know anything about the industry and about how trends form and then how trends trends sort of transfer into mainstream uh, and you're watching this intermittent fasting is coming it's coming mainstream I don't know what the manifestation of that will be but like paleo has gotten a lot of traction right now and it's sort of the big it thing in the nutrition world uh, intermittent fasting is fast on its heels so it's coming and if you're a fitness professional a personal trainer you know, strength coach, whatever, and you're not paying attention to this, it's going to blindside you. You're going to be like, "What? when the hell did this get popular? Well, it's been getting popular. So be prepared. Understand what it's all about for when your clients come to you and they ask questions about it, you can answer them intelligently instead of just being like, oh, no, fasting, that's stupid. You'll lose all your muscle. Well, that's not true. Um, or, oh, yeah, fasting, it's the best thing. You should try it. Uh, Dr. John Berardi lost 25 pounds on it. Uh well, that's a problem, too, because there's a bunch of caveats. You know, people who um, have a lot of stress in their lives probably shouldn't start intermittent fasting. People with a history of disordered eating probably shouldn't start intermittent fasting. People who um, um, are just beginners uh, don't have a history of dieting or, you know, paying attention to what they eat probably shouldn't start intermittent fasting. Uh, people who have a young family at home. I mean, this is very relevant to me. Uh, probably shouldn't start intermittent fasting. For me, I was able to kind of manage it because of my long history of understanding food intake. But nevertheless, you know, you, you bring all those other things together, uh, young family at home, not a lot of experience with nutrition and dieting, uh, other, other lifestyle stressors, uh, a history of disordered eating. This is a recipe for disaster. And none of the intermittent fasting proponents are going to tell you that because they're just trying to sell you some stuff. But, uh, but you know, I, we published a free ebook on it. And we don't sell anything around intermittent fasting. Uh, you can download the book for free without even giving me your email address on our website. So uh, i got nothing to sell here. I've got no agenda to promote. Uh, really, it's just... You know, I love educating people. I did a pretty cool experiment, and uh, and these were the results. So, you know, I, I think it was an awesome thing to play around with for me. But I, I'm in a different category than most of your clients. Um, you know, for most clients, I think it's a little bit too extreme. It's a little bit too difficult. It's a little too abnormal. Now, my whole life around athletics and nutrition has been abnormal. So people people give me a flyer on that one, you know. So... That's kind of what happened, and, and you know, since the experiments, like I said, if anyone's listening in and they're interested, they can just come by the site and, and, and grab the book. I mean, it's actually hosted online, so you don't even have to download anything. Um, you know, but since then, I kind of, like you said, Craig, about the breakfast thing and, and you know, how my ideas might have, might have changed since, since the experiments. Really, what, what happened was, you know, I started, uh, after the intermittent fasting experiments ended, I kind of started playing around with just some different iterations, and uh, I even went for a little phase without doing any intermittent fasting, I mean, except for my overnight sleep, right? So I just kind of got up in the morning, had a little breakfast, whatever. But I found that I really, really liked for productivity uh, the mornings without having to eat. Uh, I just found I really like waking up, having making a green tea, getting on my workstation, Get, let, letting her rip, you know, and then having like a natural break in my day around noon where I just stopped, went and trained, 
and then ate my first meal. So, you know, for those reasons, I decided, hey, I'm, I'm just going to keep doing this. And I was pretty cautious because with the high intensity of the training that I'm doing right now, I wasn't sure if it would work, if it would support my training. And it's been fine. With that said, I'm still cautious because, you know, I'm, I, you know, I'm working with a track coach now and our, our workout volumes and our intensities are going up. And uh, I want to make sure that, uh, that I'm well enough fueled for these, for recovery. And uh, if I start to notice things breaking down or simply uh, I'm in a, in a negative energy balance due to the fasting, and, and uh, you know, I mean, you don't have to be. I mean, you can eat humongous meals after your fast is broken, but that's not, uh, it's not great for digestion and a host of other things. But, yeah, I'm just kind of keeping an eye on it. So, yeah, I mean, I've fallen into this pattern where it's just, you know, train around noon, eat your first meal, eat two more meals before bed, and then do the same thing all over again. And uh, to be honest, I, I think I'd probably physiologically prefer to be eating breakfast. Um, I think probably physiologically my preferred fasting routine would be basically fast one day a week or one day every other week on Sundays or something and then just eat sort of breakfast, lunch, dinner and a snack or something like that in there somewhere along the way. But um but for pro- productivity and just kind of lifestyle stuff, I kind of like the routine of of not having to prepare back breakfast in the morning and being able to get right to work. That's just kind of where I've I've landed. And you know what? I know a lot of guys have landed there too. I think John Romanello's landed there. Uh, I'm pretty close to there. Uh, I don't go till noon, but you know, when you get up and you just sit down and you work and you just get so much done, uh, mm-hmm. that that one is, is very very common. And and the weird thing is, is we find a lot of people who are very busy have gravitated to us. And I know the first time that Brad Pilon told me about this whole idea was, you know, 2007 or something. I thought, I thought I'd never be able to talk to the guy again after he told me. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, true. the weirdest thing was is so many people in, in the Turbulence Training Transformation Contest started using this thing and liking it. Um, and, and generally it was a specific type of person who had a specific lifestyle that was not conducive to six uh, meals per day. And... Mm-hmm. You know, those were the people that that did really well with it. But uh, mm-hmm. we thank you very much for your information on that, and that's very cool. And I guess you would say that that's kind of the one that you found to be most convenient was the way that you have things structured now. I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Generally, that's that's exactly how how I feel. But you know, again, this isn't just a blanket recommendation for everyone. I've found that um, you know, and we've experimented with a lot of clients doing this. Again, I mean, we have a client pool that's larger than anyone's in the world right now, and we test out these ideas. Um, for example, we, we've been using intermittent fasting, different iterations of it, with subgroups in our coaching programs. And, um, you know, I mean, uh, all in an attempt to always just be getting better. What, I mean, what are the best strategies for the different outcomes? And when I say best, I don't just mean the before and after pictures. I mean, that's where people get all wrapped up in the Internet. Oh, look at those before and after pictures. But it's like these are human beings in those pictures with lives and families and, and, and people in their lives that, you know, they uh, they love and they're accountable to. So, you know, what what is the confluence of, 
you know, best physical transformation or best physical results plus best lifestyle results plus best work outcomes, all these types of things. And, you know, the fasting thing simply is not for a lot, a lot of people. I mean, for some people, it seems to really help them control their appetite better. For other people, it makes a raging appetite that they can't control. For some, it, it takes their thought off of food. You know, for some people, eating more frequently makes them think about food all day, and then it becomes a strange, weird obsession. For other people, by doing fasting, it becomes that same obsession in the other direction. They're just thinking about what they're going to eat next all day. So, I mean, we don't really know why that is. You know, different personalities, you know, different physiological makeups, different responses. I mean, it could just be the, the, the energy balance situation. We don't really know. But... It's just something to be conscious about. And this is one of the main lessons that we teach in our coaching program, basically self-awareness. I mean, this is, I call it paying attention to your life. You know, you try things. I mean, we're all doing many experiments on our lives all the time. Experiments in our relationships, experiments in our work, experiments in our food, in our exercise. So you just got to pay better attention. Keep a little journal. Keep some notes. Just Think about what am I feeling and experiencing right now and don't let some expert tell you what to do all the time and just follow it blindly. Just got to pay attention. So, you know, that's that's my cautionary tale. I, I can't say it strongly enough because as IF gets popular, we're going to see a lot of wrecked people. You're going to see just as many wrecked people as you see people who benefit from it. And all the people who benefit from it are going to say I'm crazy right now. No, 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 that's total bullshit, JB. You're, you're just being too uh, conservative about this. But it's simply not true. This is what happens in our field. Someone gets results with a low-carb diet, and then they think low-carb is for everyone, and they become the low-carb zealot, right? And then, but then you have other people who got phenomenal results on, let's call it, say, a high-carb diet. And then they go, and they beat the high-carb drum. And then the, the, the two people look at each other across the table and think the other one is completely wrong and absurd, <laughs> Meanwhile, they're not even looking at the evidence where both of them are actually lean. So it's just one of these things, you know. Be careful, be careful, be careful with this type of stuff. And don't get so locked into giving everyone the same advice that works for you because it simply doesn't work that way. And, you know, I have enough experience now and I've worked with enough clients to know that when you do that, when you say, oh, well, this worked for me, it should work for everyone, you're not a professional anymore. You're just a hobbyist who's giving advice. And your advice should be ignored. So anyway, I'll get off the soapbox now. Uh, one thing you mentioned there that I really uh, like to get people to understand is to pay attention to things and to to treat themselves as an experiment. But most people don't ever even think that way. So what's the natural progression that you get people to think that way when they get into precision nutrition? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I mean... Uh, self-experimentation is becoming pretty popular on the web right now. You know, there are groups devoted to this. Um, you know, I mean, Tim Ferriss is, is someone that I know well, and I, I know you know Tim as well, and uh, we've done some projects together. And, uh, you know, he talks a lot about self-experimentation. There's a group called Quantified Self where these guys are like data nerds just measuring everything about themselves, and, and, and if you like that, it's a great community. My, my, I guess my only problem with this movement is that for people who don't go through a progression, you know, like, like you talk about, how do you get people to start thinking about self-experimentation? Well, the way to do it is not self-experimentation. It's guided experimentation. 
So that's really step one. It's like, okay, I'm sitting in a place where I don't listen to my body very well. I haven't for years. Um, I, I spend my life in what we call the shoulds. Right? Oh, I should be doing this. I should be doing that. I should be doing this. In our relationships, in our food, everything. Right? We just walking around with all this guilt because we think we should be doing certain things, but we're not actually asking our body what what it wants. Um, so the next step out of that is guided experimentation, where you find someone who knows what the hell they're doing, and they go through some experimentation with you. You know, you work on ideas on what to try together. Uh, it's not someone who just tells you what to do. Because that, that that doesn't have a long-term value. Uh, people who just tell you what to do, well, you know, you, you may follow that or you might like that or think you like that in the beginning. But unless you're actually engaged in the what-to-do process, like helping figure it out together as a team, it just doesn't work that well in the long run. Um, so you get this little bit of guidance from someone who knows what's up, right, who knows a little bit about physiology or if it's uh, with respect to your career, who knows about your career and, and how it works. Um, and then after that, once you have a bit of guided experimentation, someone preventing you from making egregious mistakes in the beginning, then you can go on the path of self-experimentation. And for us, one of the first steps before, I mean, it's a very, we're talking about things that are active, like doing experiments is an activity, right? But one of the first steps is actually something different. It's actually what we call noticing and naming. And uh, the idea behind it is we often feel things. Uh, we feel a response to something. And instead of noticing and naming what we're feeling, we just respond to that feeling. So uh, I'll give you an example You know, and, and, uh, from my personal life. right? There are certain things with, with my wife and I that are triggers, okay? Like if I say something or she says something that, and it makes the other person feel a certain way, there's a trigger, right? And the trigger is I feel something and I'm going to respond to it, right? And we see this with clients all the time as well. Let's say you tell a client that they're doing something wrong with their nutrition or exercise. The first thing they do is they get defensive, but that's not the first thing they feel, defensiveness is an action not a feeling so what we we try and do is we try and get train them to notice and name what they're feeling before they respond so for example let's say you make a critique of a client's program and uh they're going to feel something at first before they respond to that it may be a tightness in their stomach you know it may be like a shallowness in their breath it might be something in their shoulders so we train people before they respond to just Think about where they're feeling, what they're feeling, and then notice and name that. Say, oh, you know what? It, it, they don't have to say it out loud. You might sound a little weird, but you say it in your own brain. Okay, when they just told me that thing, I got really tight in my stomach. Huh, that's kind of interesting. What could have caused that? Right? And then you go down that path. You say, oh, you know what? I'm probably feeling threatened or judged or whatever the feeling might be. And when you notice a name, you start to notice patterns in yourself. You start to notice, oh, when I get tightness in my stomach, that usually means I'm feeling judged. When I get tightness in my shoulders, that usually means I'm feeling threatened. Whatever the case may be, and you'll see these patterns in your life, and it's fascinating to be able to take control, to stop at the, at the feeling level and say, all right, I'm feeling threatened right now. And that gives you just a few critical seconds to respond in an appropriate way, right? Because normally if you're feeling threatened and you don't notice a name, the, the next thing is an outburst. 
It's either to get away from the threat or to confront it. So it's either fight or flight, right? So, you know, what we're talking about doing is giving you a few key seconds to decide whether you need to fight or flight or whether those are not appropriate responses at all. Maybe you just need to take a deep breath. And so everything begins, you know, in our coaching and, uh, you know, I really think in experimentation from noticing and naming, from taking that time to figure out what's going on inside and why it's happening. Because when you start doing that, it just, it, it, it's like the matrix, you know, it's like when, when Neo can like slow down the bullets, you know what I mean? Uh, that's exactly what it's like with your emotional life and your relationships and your orientation to exercise or your work. You can like slow down these things and you can prevent yourself from acting inappropriately, doing stupid things, whatever the case might be. And it's a, it's a really critical first step in the progression, like we talked about earlier, of self-awareness, of paying attention, uh, and then of going to higher order things like self-experimentation. So it, it may not make a lot of sense at first that that's actually even part of this pathway, but it's the most critical part. It's the foundational stuff, and it's stuff that no one ever teaches you. So we spend a lot of time on that in our coaching programs for sure because it's so valuable. And so are those some of the uh, nutrition progression models that you mentioned? Are those all of them, or is there some other ones that you want to talk about that you kind well, of started on earlier? Yeah, well, you know, with, with nutritional progression models, you know, again, like I said, I mean, one of the most complex nutrition things to do is to follow a meal plan. And, and some people disagree with me here, but you have to break it down. They think, oh, well, if you just hand me a meal plan, it's going to be easy for me to do. Well, the truth is, for some people, it will be easy to do for the short term. But how many times have you seen someone get handed a meal plan, and let's say they're super type A, and they follow it religiously for one month, two months, three months, and you're like, wow, you're really doing well. You're one of my superstar clients. Look at you go. And then all of a sudden, they fall off the face of the earth. And you follow up with them, and you're like, what happened? And they're like, oh, well, this came up or that came up. My child got sick. Something happened at work. Got injured in the gym. Whatever. And they're not able to do it anymore, right? And we don't put two and two together. We don't realize that almost every single person we've given a meal plan to is not following it a year later. We don't put those two things together and then say something is broken with the meal plan model. So what we've finally and, and again in our program we have a, a luxury and an advantage. We have loads and loads of people going through it, and we get to work with them for a year. So we actually get midterm data, not just the first few months. We get midterm data, and many of them stay on with us after that. So we get some long-term data as well. So for us, it's like, what can we give people that's not a meal plan? That, And how can we build it up so that a year from now, they're still able to do the things that we gave them? And the ultimate goal might be for them to be able to create their own meal planning ideas, but it's not going to happen on day one. So with our progressions, you know, we like to start with simple things in the beginning that can have a very high compliance and then build up over time. And some of the things that we like to begin with, and I'll just give a, f a few of the initial habits in our coaching program. Uh, the first one, start with fish oil and a multivitamin. You know, that's the first two weeks. And basically this is how we chunk it out. We give people a simple habit that they have a high percentage compliance with 
for two weeks. And then once they have that habit mastered, we introduce another habit. So the first one is very simple. It's fish oil and a multivitamin. And why does that work so well? Well, because it's the beginning of the program. Uh, the likelihood that they'll be able to follow it because it's simple is pretty high. So they can build up a bit of mental success around the new program. But in addition to that, almost every single person coming into a program like ours has a host of nutritional deficiencies. So right out of the gate, we're giving them something easy that they can do. We're fixing a bunch of nutritional deficiencies. And in the dose we give it, fish oil has been shown to impact motivation centers in the brain. So we may be able to actually increase their motivation for this new program that they've started. And also we see a kickstarting in fat loss. So it's just a fantastic habit that's so, so simple. And it just starts out on day one and it's manageable and easy. After that, Instead of getting into macronutrients and protein and carbs and fats, which is where everyone spends their lives in the nutrition world, coaching and teaching nowadays, we start with something else. The next couple of habits are habits that teach people how to control calories without counting calories. So the next habit is eat slowly. Okay. Now, we have ways of quantifying that, and we work with our clients to ensure that they're moving on this continuum from super fast eater, which most people are, to slow eater. And so why do we do that? Well, slow eating uh, allows us to wait for satiety cues or fullness cues from our meals. It usually takes 15 or 20 minutes to start to feel full. And I don't know about you, but I can eat a hell of a lot of food in 15 minutes. I could eat my entire calorie requirements for the day in 15 minutes. So by slowing down our eating, we give our bodies a chance to sort of sense into hunger and appetite cues. And then we can you know, sort of stop eating when it's time to stop eating rather than when the plate's done. So eating slowly, I mean, it, it feels like this non-scientific, strange right-brained type of thing to do at the beginning of a program but it's the best calorie control strategy without counting calories. It forces people to slow down, which always forces them to eat less, and it creates this new dynamic relationship with food. One of the activities that or exercises we have people do is called the consciousness raisin. And uh, what we do is we give them 10 raisins, and we ask them to take 10 minutes to eat the 10 raisins. And this is excruciating for people, right? I mean, raisins in particular, nuts, hand, like foods that are in small pieces that you can you know, throw handfuls into your mouth are really difficult for people because they're used to eating you know, 20 or 30 raisins in one handful. And uh, what people come out of this little experiment with, though, is a new appreciation for the fact that, A, you can eat 10 raisins in 10 minutes. Like you can put one raisin in your mouth and chew it. Um, number two, raisins taste completely differently than you thought when you eat them this way, completely differently. And, uh, and then the third thing is you can actually think while you're eating. You can actually sense into how your mouth feels, how the sweetness of the natural sugars in the raisins impact different areas of your mouth and your tongue. And uh, this is paying attention, you know. And so we basically train people in the beginning to start paying attention to how their bodies respond to food. And the only way to do that is slowing down because your body's signals are more of a whisper. Um, you know, I mean, your body's signals are quite loud when you're injured, right? And then you throb and feel pain everywhere and you're miserable. But when you're, when you're healthy, 
your body signals to your brain are kind of a whisper. So you have to go slow and you have to be quiet and you have to listen. You know, a lot of people say, you know, in the calorie counting debate, you see people on either side. Yes, you should calorie count to get in shape. How else are you going to know whether you're eating enough or too much or whatever, right? So that's a very mathematical approach. On the other side, people say, oh, no, just use intuitive eating. Stop eating before you're full and, you know, eat again when you're hungry. And uh, the, the main problem I have with intuitive eating is that it's not something you can do without training because most people don't know how to intuit. <laughs> they don't know how to pay attention, right? So uh, when you say, oh, yeah, well, you know, if I, my body's telling me to eat all the time, right? So that's, that's what I think I should be doing if I'm using intuition. But the truth is you have to be trained in how to listen to body signals. You can't just do it on your own without some practice. So eating slow is one of those practices. The next habit we roll into it is stopping at 80% full. And, uh, you know, we like to quantify it, and we teach people how to look at this one. But uh, the idea is, if you're looking to lose fat, instead of eating until you're full, you eat until you're no longer hungry. And those are two very different things. And we give people cueing, and we give them some, some questionnaires and checklists that they can go through in the very beginning so that they can understand this. But you can see, again, this is a way of controlling calories without counting calories. It's the ultimate way of doing it. It's creating a relationship with your body where you understand the signals that it's giving you, what they mean. You're very quiet and you're listening for them. That's why we tell people to turn off the TV while they're eating. Just pay attention to what you're doing here. At least in the beginning, all this stuff is, is sort of overt, right? I mean, we don't ask people to eat 10 raisins in 10 minutes every day it's it's a practice that they that they do once and so in the beginning you just shut off the distractions slow down you listen for hunger and appetite cues and you start paying attention to them and that starts to build up this awareness so that you don't have to follow a meal plan and you don't have to count calories and you don't have to go back to your coach every time you've hit a plateau you start just tuning into your body because it sends good signals, but you have to listen to them. And then, then we start to introduce things like, well, how much protein should I be eating? How much carbohydrate? How much fat? And then a host of the other things that people think should be essential to a nutrition coaching program. But in the beginning, we're doing stuff that almost no one else does and no one else talks about because it's that building up of awareness, that building up of uh, sort of mastery over yourself and the ability to do self-experimentation in a guided format in the beginning. So that's, that's a little bit of how we do a progression. And it's not unlike when a new client comes to the gym. And, uh, I mean, bad trainers crush them on day one, right? You show up. Someone's like, yeah, I'm ready to get in shape. You're like, oh, I'm going to give you a good workout. It's going to make you sore. Know you were here, right? And uh, that's, that's ridiculous. You know, the person can't work out for another two weeks after that. So a good trainer make it like ridiculously simple in the beginning. They'll start so basic, it seems ridiculous. But the idea is so that the person can keep coming back, they get what they need, and they can build up their tolerance and capacity over time. So that's what we're trying to do with nutrition. Fantastic. Now, now you've got people in. Uh, what have you learned in terms of compliance over the long term from, you know, whether it's you know, through your direct uh, experiences through precision nutrition or from some of the trainers that you work with and, and talk to on a regular basis? 
Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the way that we have our, our, our company structured now is such that we have this kind of uh, virtuous cycle of learning, right? So basically, our Lean Eating Coaching Program gives us this testing ground for ideas, uh, both in terms of like what foods people should eat and what exercise they should do, and what coaching style we should use and what strategies and you know what type of counseling and what type of words do we use with our clients. It's sort of the psychologies uh, yin to the physiologies yang. And uh, I, what that does then is it feeds our certification program. So, I mean, we're certifying about 3,000 fitness professionals a year right now through our uh, precision nutrition certification. And so everything we're learning from the coaching program goes into the certification program. So it kind of feeds into what we're teaching fitness professionals to try. And then the awesome part is then now we have this uh, virtual army of highly trained exceptional fitness professionals feeding back to us what's going on out in their communities and then that goes into our coaching program so you can see if you can picture this sort of circle of coaching program feeding the certification program results of the work that our certified coaches are doing feeding the coaching program and it's fantastic i mean it's 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 basically open source shared learning in the nutrition field so I mean, some of the things that we've spent a lot of time on in terms of increasing compliance are, I mean, some of the things we talked about already, like, for example, the progression, the nutritional progressions. If you give people habits that are too hard to follow in the beginning, their compliance will suck. And how do you know if they're too hard to follow? You've got to ask. And that's one of the things that always shocks me in the medical community, in the fitness community. Trainers feel like they need to be experts. So they need to tell their clients what to do. And uh, very seldom do I see trainers asking their clients if they feel like they can do it. And that's one of the strategies we've picked up. So let's say you, you, wanna, um, you, want, you think your client's limiting factor is around protein intake, and you think they should eat more protein. So you give them a recommendation. What, you know, what I think uh, may really benefit you is to eat a, a portion of protein about the size of your palm, four times today, okay? Now, at most at most uh, situations, that's it. Go do that. But uh, the next logical question is, Craig, this is some advice I want to give to you. Um, how confident do you think or do you feel on a scale of 0 to 10, 0 meaning uh, I, no way I can do this, 10 being of course I can do this, how confident do you feel on a scale of 0 to 10 that you can actually eat four portions of protein the size of your palm today? And listen for an answer. If, if I were to ask you that question, you were to say two, I feel two on the scale of confidence, which is next to, no, there's no way I'm doing this. That's the wrong habit to give you. But I have no idea whether your confidence is there unless I ask. So that's a tremendous strategy for increasing compliance. And then obviously the correct response for me would be, oh, okay, well, that's, Craig feels like that's going to be very, very difficult. Let's make the habit easier, and let's give him something he feels like he can actually do. So then we start actually going through a process of co-creating the habit that you will be actually likely to follow. So, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's another strategy. I mean, you know, so it's, it's uh, using a nutritional progression model. So laying out your habits in advance and looking at which habits will build on the next 
to lead to a long-term accumulation of success. Again, thinking of it like teaching a, a, a snatch or an Olympic lift, right? What chunks of this movement do I teach? In what order? When do I introduce the next one? So that eventually, six months down the road, a year down the road, this person can actually do a snatch. You do the same with nutrition. Everyone may come up with a bit of a different progression model, but you need a progression model. So as you start laying that out and giving that to people, it has to be collaborative. You can't just say, oh, the next step in the progression is this. You know, In the training environment, you get immediate feedback. Oh, okay, now we're going to add the high pull. Oh, wow, this person's falling flat on their face with the high pull. Okay, we need to back it off now. But in the nutrition model, we don't do that. We say, oh, well, you need to eat your protein. Oh, you didn't do it? Well, you suck. You just must not have motivation or whatever. So it's completely different. We don't use the same rules that we use in physical training with nutrition. So that's the next one. So you build up your progression, you introduce the habits when they're most relevant, and then you make sure someone can actually do it. And if they feel like they just don't have the confidence to do it, you back off until they get the confidence. So those are just some some you know introductory strategies. There's a host of other things. I mean, you know, one of the books that I think has really, really changed the way that I look at coaching is called Motivational Interviewing. And it's a, it's a, a coaching book. Uh, it's basically a counseling book uh, that comes out of the counseling psychology field. And uh, it was basically created in the 70s by a team of psychologists who um, were working with a lot of people with addictions, so drugs, alcohol, etc. And... Um, after originally proposing the theory and then a whole bunch of research testing uh, and then a bunch of field testing, this has become sort of like a dominant paradigm in change. And, uh, and, and I mean, it's become so dominant because it's so, so inspiring and it's so compelling. And it's, it's one of the fields that has really adopted it is health psychology. Um, so people who are looking to make health behavioral changes, the medical community spends a lot of time with motivational interviewing nowadays, or at least the best ones do, and we're teaching it uh, through our certification program and through our own coaching program, we're using it. But the idea with motivational interviewing is that clients basically come to a change type of situation with what's called ambivalence. And, and a lot of people have the wrong notion about that word. They think it means that you don't care. But ambivalence actually means that you want to do something, but you don't want to do it all at the same time. And we all feel this ambivalence in some aspects of our lives. And if a client comes to you and they pay you to be their personal trainer or their nutrition coach, and they take the next illogical action, which is to not follow your advice, you get kind of pissed. You're like, what is wrong with this person? They come to me for advice, but they won't follow it. You're experiencing ambivalence at its finest. They want to change. They want to do better. They want to exercise. They want to eat better foods. But they also don't at the same time. That shouldn't be very strange, but trainers don't seem to get it. I didn't get it early in my career. So what do you do with that ambivalence? Well, motivational interviewing helps. You know, it's a series of sort of understanding. It's a negotiation process. That's why it's not called motivational counseling or it's called interviewing because you're basically chatting with your client in a way that what they call um, facilitates change talk. And this is a, a great strategy that, that, that I think um, 
once you hear how it works, it's it's phenomenal. So let's say you you're playing like expert coach, and you 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 all know the one, the guy who stands there with his arms crossed, looking all stern, being disciplinarian and authoritarian, telling clients what to do. So you play that coach, and someone comes in and they're ambivalent. They want to change, but they don't. And you tell them, you know what, you're drinking, uh, I'm looking at your diet plan here, what you're eating on a regular basis, and you drink a lot of soda, pop, whatever, soft drinks. Um, That's certainly standing in the way of your results. You have like five glasses of soft drinks a day. Um, You need to stop doing that, right? And the minute you start telling clients what they're doing wrong, they start rationalizing their behaviors, right? They're like, well, you know what? I, I don't think it's actually that big of a deal. And the, the caffeine helps me stay awake. And, uh, you know, I've heard how coffee's bad, and I don't want to drink coffee, five cups of coffee instead. So this is what I end up doing. So what you've just done is created a situation where the trainer or the coach is arguing for change. They're saying, you need to change your soft drink behaviors. And the client is arguing against change. Can you see how this is just a recipe for disaster? You don't want your clients telling you all the reasons why they can't do what you're asking them to do. Instead, you want them to tell you the reasons why they can. And in fitness, we've spent our entire fitness profession career, and and not just as individuals, but the entire profession has spent our entire careers since the beginning. In fitness, a relatively new career. Telling people what to do and listening to them say why they can't do it. That is a huge mistake. The minute someone says out loud, I can't do what you've just asked me for these two or three reasons, whether they're good or not, they are unlikely to change because they're arguing out loud against change. And this, again, was for me a revelation because all these things that I'm talking about on the call today have taken me freaking 20 years to figure out. So when I first started reading this, I'm like, oh, my God. No matter how badly I want to help my clients, no matter how good my intentions are, I could be making them less likely to change. From our relationship, I could be making it harder for them to do things that they should be doing rather than easier. Holy shit. I mean, huge revelation for me. So, you know, kind of summing this up, I think motivational interviewing is something that every fitness professional, everyone who aspires to coach should be familiar with. And, uh, you know, some of the strategies that we've learned are, you know, directly borrowed from motivational interviewing and others are sort of hybrid coaching strategies that are sort of specifically adopted to fitness and nutrition, but all work from the same presupposition. You know, change needs to be rolled out in easy, single steps. It needs to be delivered in a way that clients feel like they have the confidence that they can do it. It has to be delivered in a way that clients argue for doing it rather than against doing it. And we have a host of other strategies probably beyond the scope of the call today, but uh, but that's just kind of the beginning. That's scratching the surface of what we've been learning about how to work with clients and how to facilitate change. And I guess the big question from people listening in should be, well, how well does this work? And, uh, I mean, we're proud to say that when you look at our compliance data from our lean eating coaching, and, you know, remember, to date we've coached like close to 9,000 clients. Um, Our exercise compliance is over 71%. Our nutrition habit compliance is 73%. 
and our assignments, we have people do assignments, is in the mid-70s. So basically, for exercise, nutrition, and lessons and habits that we ask people to do, we're over 70% compliance. And that's with thousands and thousands of people, no data thrown out whatsoever, so it's not like corrected for you know just high performers or anything. That's just raw data. And that's with an internet program. That's you know, that's not with a personal trainer in person. That's not with direct local accountability. It's with an Internet-based program. I'm thrilled with those results. I think it is a testament to these coaching strategies that we've learned and adopted, and we continue to sort of morph into new strategies. And uh, I think a lot of people could learn from that with their in-person coaching practice as well as with an Internet practice. Yeah, that's fantastic stuff, man. It gives me a lot to think about and uh, a lot for the trainers on the listening to this interview to think about as well, uh, John. So, again, another fantastic call. Another. Uh, this is probably the most powerful one in terms of you know, changing our mindset into how we deal with our clients. So thank you very much, sir. Really appreciate it. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I mean, I, I'm always honored by the opportunity to talk to the people who listen to your calls, Craig, and to have a, the, the opportunity to chat with you as well. So, again, thanks for having me. Obviously, this is stuff I'm extremely passionate about, so I love getting it out into the world and, and sharing this with people. So thank you. All right. Well, everybody, make sure you check out John's, uh, first of all, his download of his uh, intermittent fasting experiment at Precision Nutrition, and make sure you check out uh, their certification program if you're also interested in becoming more knowledgeable about their, their system, their progressions, and, of course, nutrition in general. So, everybody, thank you for being on the call. This is Craig Ballantyne from TurbulenceTraining.com. We'll be back next month with another great interview. Bye-bye, everyone.